0: Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. Dr. Mimi Haddad is president of Christians for Biblical Equality. She has written more than 100 articles and blogs and has contributed to 10 books, most recently, Godly Woman, An Agent of Transformation, published by the Evangelical Fellowship of India. Dr. Haddad is an adjunct assistant professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, an adjunct assistant professor at Bethel University, and an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary. Dr. Haddad serves as a gender consultant for World Vision. Recorded in October 2015 at the Vineyard Justice Network Conference in Anaheim, California, Dr. Haddad speaks on the theology of abolition and gender equality.
1: Ready? Okay. Shall we, shall we pray together? So, Lord, we, uh, we lean upon you with all of our might and all of our strength and ask that you would just fill the corners of our lives and the center of our life with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to bring you glory and that this conversation would be guided by your Holy Spirit. So we ask you to be present in all ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my name is Mimi Haddad and I uh, work for an organization in Minneapolis. Also voted the greenest city in the U.S. for I don't know how many years in a row, Woo! Sorry Oregon. Uh, I work for an organization called Christians for Biblical Equality and it's located in uptown Minneapolis and uh, I also work as a gender consultant for World Vision and I just got back from two and a half weeks of working with faith leaders in rural uh, South Africa and Kenya. And my interest is in the 200 million girls who are missing from our planet. Um, And I work on the theological end of this conversation. Uh, So, we have a booth upstairs if you want to learn more about our work. And I would just love to talk to you, I'm here all day, with our good hosts from Vanguard University. And I want to say a special thanks to Dr. Sandra Morgan who made all of this possible. Uh, well, beginning as early as 1990, a uh, world-famous leader in economics, Amartya Sin, who is a chair of economics at Harvard, uh, started to do blinking statistics and he discovered as early as 1990 that I think he said around 75 to 100 million girls were missing from the planet. Uh, and World Bank corroborated this data. Um, And they began to raise a siren call. Where are these girls? Largely missing in Southeast Asia. Nobody seemed interested. Uh, They published the sad news, uh, tried to publish it in academic and professional journals. And the journalists, uh, popular journalists, really were more interested in uh, issues uh, related to political intrigue. So that was in the early 90s. Uh, It certainly, news of the the missing girls and women fell on deaf ears certainly within the church. What was interesting about the research done by World Bank is that these women and girls were missing in the global south and especially Southeast Asia where religious, philosophical, and cultural patriarchy were extremely virulent. And and they're missing in places where there aren't laws protecting girls and women. Uh, And it seemed to be that this cultural patriarchy, philosophical and religious patriarchy, sort of formed this nexus of annihilation. Um, And we were facing what looked like a massive gendercide. Now that is, if that's not bad enough, I think the, the saddest part of all is that this news didn't seem interesting to many people. So in 1990, we knew that the gender ratios for the first time in history were terribly skewed. Now for Christians, right, this should have been an alarm that woke us up. It has, it's starting to wake us up because now the numbers are up in the 200 million range. 200 million girls and women are missing from the planet. That constitutes the largest human holocaust in all of history. I can barely say that without crying. That is the largest human holocaust in all of history. But we don't really read much about it today. Where are these girls? Well, uh, this launched, um, this, this crisis, this gendercide launched um, increasing awareness by the NGO community And they began to earmark programs and projects aimed at dismantling patriarchy. So essentially this conversation is a theological conversation about dismantling patriarchy. But what do we mean by patriarchy? Well, according to (coughs) Merriam-Webster, patriarchy is defined as a family group or government controlled by a man or a group of men. These are societies or institutions, colleges, churches, denominations, organized according to the principles and practices of male preeminence or patriarchy. Now patriarchy in a culture, a church or a family or organization, is almost always sustained by a tradition or theological or philosophical practice because people need reasons to do the things they do. We're rational, mostly, (laughs) creatures. We have a sense of right and wrong. We have sort of a moral heart, if you will. And we don't usually subjugate or marginalize or remove from the tables of decision-making a group of people unless we have a very good reason. And so for many cultures, including Christian culture, uh, that reason is a religious reason. So too often for Christians, and that's the group we're talking about today, uh, will lean upon select passages of scripture and interpret them very poorly as a rationale to support male rule. Uh, and that is um, what we call um, Christian patriarchy. Now if you haven't picked up a book by Miroslav Volf, he has written a wonderful book called Exclusion and Embrace. It's definitely um, been around and been in print for many years, but he documents historically how culture first marginalizes a group of people, and that marginalization almost always leads to abuse, and we can think of lots of historic examples of this. He of course is talking about his homeland, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavian people and how um, various groups were marginalized in their cultural wars. But we can think about how the Germans marginalized the Jews during the Nazi regime, first declaring them to be less than the Aryan race, and then the cause of their problems in post-World War I Germany. So marginalization almost always leads to abuse. And this certainly was what the Millennium Project orchestrated by the uh, UN decided (coughs) in their work to uh, raise humanitarian goals around the world. They discovered and they believe that the empowerment of women has been one of the strongest drivers of social well-being and it's acknowledged as essential for addressing global changes facing humanity. Um, Women, (coughs) according to their uh, project, which is organized by 250 world leaders in fields like medicine, journalism, economics, Uh, any major field dealing with humanitarian objectives, they came together to to insist that the empowerment of women will be the quickest way to undermine disease, starvation, illiteracy, and so on. And here is their research. According to the Millennium Project, women account for uh, less than 20% of all national legislative bodies worldwide. 14% of all the 273 presiding officers in parliament Um, are women, so that was in 2012. Only 20 women were heads of state or government. Globally, women comprise about uh, 9% of the corporate boards in the world, even though putting women, more than two women, on a corporate board not only makes them more competitive to whomever they're competing against, but it also raises the ethical practices of a business. isn't that astonishing right and it makes you wonder if Lehman brothers had a few more sisters if we wouldn't have faced this economic crisis right and and there's good theological reasons for this because we were intended to work together right so when you marginalize you 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 mail a phi or you white a phi a group of people for no good reason although perhaps you have Uh, a reason, Uh, it doesn't really give your group strength. So the single most important factor as to whether girls will be paid the same amount as boys or women and men are paid the same amount for the same work is if the CEO of the company has a daughter. That's the most significant element shaping economic justice in American corporations. Now, actually, in the best-case scenario, women only make 30 are paid 30 percent less than men for the same work. That's a good scenario. Yet, women do most of the unpaid work worldwide. They represent 50 and a half percent of the 1.52 billion workers who are vulnerable in employment. They have no um, um, no economic package, be it health care, unemployment, to protect them. Really, and that really makes sexual abuse. Prominent. About seventy percent of women, live, people living in, pro, in poverty, are women. While representing the largest number of agricultural workers, uh, women receive only about five percent of agricultural services. The Food and Agricultural Organization, which is a very powerful and highly educated group, say that if you put women as heads of Farming cooperatives or farming companies, you will reduce global starvation by 100 to 150 million people a year. Put women at the decision making tables in agricultural businesses and corporations will lower starvation. And I know, I mean, I'm from Minnesota, agriculture is one of our big businesses, and uh, I know very few women who are on these boards. My husband is part of a nonprofit or a um, A co op, and there are no women on the board and no women uh, CEOs. It's a very uh, male dominant discipline field. Women represent 64% of the 775 million adult illiterates. So, this is the data that the Millennium Project has collected. Turning to gender based violence, female um, maternal uh, mortality um, has decreased in the last two decades, but still, even so, um, this problem is a huge concern in Asia and Africa. FGM traumatizes 3 million girls each year, in addition to the estimated 140 million girls and women already affected. Violence against women is the largest ongoing war in all of history. 70% of the women continue to be targeted for physical and sexual violence in their lifetime. 603 million women live in countries where domestic violence is not a crime. These are the most underreported crimes worldwide. Now, do you think justice is an issue? Gender injustice are issues? And yet, really, very rarely do you hear this data from justice forums sponsored by Christians. It's just not widely discussed. Of the estimated 800,000 people trafficked annually, 80% are women, 79% are trafficked for sexual exploitation. Many of them are children. And I said, 200 million girls are missing. And um, the, um, we, we have found, I don't know, those of you who are from Minnesota, we have um, the greatest, uh, s- longest standing study on domestic violence in marriages in the US through David Olson and his Life Innovations in New Brighton. He has the, the broadest and deepest study of measuring violence among couples, married couples, in the United States and in the Western world, really. How many of you have taken the preparing and enriched premarital inventory? <laughs> it is really the widest used premarital uh, inventory in the Western world. And that data shows that when male and female, when partners share authority in marriage, domestic violence drops. And it just makes sense, right? It's just kind of logical. Well, all of this data leads to an effort on the part of NGOs uh, to, to invest in the lives and uh, industry of girls and women. And so we call this the girl effect, we've studied this. And we've noticed that there are numerous positive consequences in investing in gender equality. Study after study, re- researchers have found that when females are valued equally to men, boys, when we keep girls in school. What keeps girls out of school is something as practical as sanitary napkins. They don't have them in many parts of the world, so they stay home. They miss huge amounts of schoolwork, and they fail and drop out, and they never make it through high school. Study after study shows that when we invest in keeping them in school, not only do their communities thrive economically, disease lowers, education rises, violence drops, and there's, um, mo- there's thriving humanitarian goals and objectives are met. So Goldman Sachs calls this the virtuous cycle. And he's written, in, uh, the journal has published a number of studies on the virtuous cycle, that investing in the lives of girls and women makes great humanitarian sense. And it's great economics, because these girls and women do not spend their money on gambling, drugs, prostitution, but in raising the status of their family and their communities. The fastest growing economy in Africa is, close, Rwanda. Rwanda has the fastest growing economy in the world. And where countries put women, uh, we're not talking about usurping authority, we're talking about sharing authority. Those are economies that flourish, and that's certainly the case in Rwanda. Well, this is the data from the secular, so called secular committee, lots of Christians working in these places. But social scientists, NGOs, humanitarians, philanthropists recognize the crushing need to dismantle patriarchy. But what about the church? What about Christians? Where are we on all of this? Well, we are very invested uh, in addressing the social issues, the cute crushing humanitarian crisis of the 200 million girls missing. But We aren't the first ones to do this, right? We are not the first ones to do this. There have been anti-trafficking uh, Christian advocates that have been around much longer than us. And over a hundred years ago, when evangelicals Believed that advancing the gospel was something that happened in word and in deed, right? We've separated those two a little bit uh, uh, during the modernist controversy in the fifties, but before that, the gospel was always advanced in word and deed. They had a high view of the cross, a high view of atonement. They had a uh, this idea that to become a Christian is to cross the most significant line in life from spiritual death to spiritual life. And if you made that journey through the power of the cross, you were to redeem everything around you, your life and everything you touched. And that meant that you advanced the gospel through social action. Just talking about it wasn't enough. You had to actually pour out God's spirit in everything you did. And here are just a few examples. But each and every one of these women addressed Uh, the sexual abuse and gender-based violence in their communities. It was almost as if the early evangelical women had a special call or a special concern to share in the challenges and burdens of the girls and women in their communities. And here's one example, Catherine Booth, I was just, it's funny, I was looking for this book, Um, I'm writing a chapter for a book, and I was looking for a book on her, and I forgot that I collected all of them myself back when books could be collected in paper form. And um, I told my husband, I said, I'm searching the web and it's like two feet behind me on a shelf. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like how your mind goes now. Hello. Catherine uh, Mumford Booth is the co-founder of the Salvation Army, which, for those of you who don't know, is a denomination. And when it was founded, in theory, it put women and men um, in the same roles and, and um, endeavors. She was a tenacious inner city worker. For those of you who don't know her, Read her books, they will change you. Read her books, bold Christianity. She's bold for the Lord. She worked in London's East End, where girls and women had been brotheled for the sexual pleasure of members of parliament. And Queen Victoria knew this. And so her objective was she'd set up these stings, right? Men would come to visit the, the prostitutes, and they were so-called, and these girls and women very much like today were, were uh, their parents were lied to, oh, we'll give her a great job in London, she'll be looked after, she'll send you money home, and they brotheled her, and beat her, and kept, kept these girls and women, so C- uh, Catherine would set up these stings and catch the members of Parliament, she wrote long letters to Queen Victoria. She had this sort of m- inner mission for herself, she said, I view it as a betrayal of humanity not to get up every day and work on behalf of girls and women for the gospel. She worked to raise the age of consent from 13 years of age to 16 years of age. She was an amazing, tenacious inner city worker. She and all of the women who worked beside her had churches that they made out of uh, really the cast offs of the industrial revolution. She, I mean, churches in England would stare at what they were able to accomplish in London's East End, and just with dismay, how come we can't do this? But her her ultimate um, conclusion was that the Bible had been wildly misinterpreted when it comes to the issue of gender. So she wrote a book, which is brilliant called Female Ministry and Women's Right to Preach the Gospel. And she shows the prejudice not only of interpreting the Bible, but of Bible translators themselves. And this is, of course, a problem that A.J. Gordon uh, notes also in his book, um, The Ministry of Women. The Bible has to this day been poorly translated. Mm -hmm. Poorly translated. The Greek and Hebrew is far better in terms of um, advancing the emancipation of all people than the English versions we read. We turned to Pandita Ramabai, who had become a Christian through a Salvation Army <laughs> revival in Calcutta. And for her, she had a burden for the girls and women of India who were burned on the funeral pyres of their husbands alive. They were alive and they were burnt to go into eternity with their husbands. Um, they were uh, illiterates. They, did not believe in the education of women. So she wrote this book. She becomes a Christian. She writes a book about women, the high caste Hindu women, their plight, and what is a biblical solution. We have Sojourner Truth, who and Amanda Berry-Smith. I didn't have time for her, but she's up here as well. Some of the great evangelists and social activists of our country who, from a biblical uh, perspective, advance the equality of men and women. What I like about Sojourner, and it's worth reading, She had one of the most brilliant theological minds in our country. She was able to, through just simple metaphors and examples, describe the biblical message on gender. She was told by a group of men that she didn't have a right to preach the gospel. You know, she's a suffragist and an abolitionist, and she would go to these meetings, and you can see her little white cap, and you can kind of see the shawl that she would wear, and she would sit on the edge of these lectures very quietly and submissively and then she would get up to speak whether she was on the program or not (laughs) and she would walk up and she had these really, her eyes would flash, all the people who knew her talked about her flashing eyes and this deep voice and she would say, she'd point out, she'd say, Jesus came from the Holy Spirit and a woman and man ain't had nothing to do with it. But really, but really, this was something that the Cappadocians, uh, the Church Fathers wrote about extensively. Karl ba- Barth wrote about it extensively. The Niebuhr brothers wrote about it extensively. But she said it in one sentence. It took them many books. <laughs> she was just totally good. And then the last but not least, our, uh, um, Kate Bushnell, who was one of the er- uh, youngest women to graduate from a college that... Pr- prepared women for medicine, she was a medical doctor, so she was the youngest woman to graduate from what is now Rush Medical College in Chicago, I don't know if you know where that is, but um, her dad wasn't all that keen on her becoming a doctor, and they lived in Evanston, Illinois, Chicago was the center (laughs) of the universe when she was alive, there were two world fairs in Chicago, and it wasn't New York, it wasn't LA, sorry, Chicago. And uh, she told her dad who built a lighthouse outside Evanston's because a ship crashed on the shores and all these people died. and she said, "Dad, I'm going to be a lighthouse to the world by becoming a Christian doctor." And that's how she convinced him to let her go to medical school. She, they lived next door to Francis Willard, who was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, so that was kind of helpful as well. And off she goes to medical school and becomes involved in what's called the Women Christian Temperance Union. Purity effort, social purity, (laughs) social purity. In other words, she's shutting down brothels, but she's a medical doctor, right? And even though her brain is the size of the universe, Kate Bushnell, I mean, people go through her notes, they're like, what is going on? She's so genius. You know, her notes are in London. A friend of mine's writing a book about this. Um, And yet, she was so dependent on the Holy Spirit, she would say, What am I supposed to do, Lord? Where am I supposed to work? I'll open my Bible and figure it out. She falls into the sleep and she dreams she's going on up to England to see Josephine Butler. She goes, that's what I'm supposed to do. Josephine Butler was freeing girls from brothels in India. So she goes to India. She goes to Josephine and knocks on her door and says, the Lord told me to come and see you. No web, no telephone, slow mail. And Josephine says, I was wondering when you were going to get here. (laughs) Is there a God? I think so. And so Kate and Josephine go to India. They infiltrate these brothels. For some reason they don't even notice these white women going into the brothels. It's an elven cloak on them. In they go. She actually documents these stories. 500 girls she interviews. Writes up their story. Takes it to parliament. And she says, Christians are doing that The Christians are doing this. I could tell you more of her stories. They're just amazing. And this is what she says. So she and Josephine go, they do this for 20 years. They shut down brothels in Michigan, the iron mines, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, the lumber mills, brothels there for girls and women. There's no law against it. She's the first to set up the laws. They call it the Kate Bushnell Law. See, we don't know this. We just don't know this history. I my in-laws live in a town where Kate taught, um, where Frances Willard taught school, her next door neighbor, Kate's next-door neighbor in Evanston. No, they spelled her name Frances with an IS, not ES. She was the most popular woman in her day, second to Queen Victoria. Nobody even knows this in Wisconsin. So So, 20 years, she's emptying brothels in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and in India. Um, So, that's 20 years of doing this, and she said, we could empty the brothel tomorrow, and within 48 hours, they're filled again. So, they decide to have this big powwow with Jesus, and they sit down with Jesus, and they say, what are we going to do? And they get this clear sense that the problem has to be addressed at the root and the root is how we read the bible and that is why we need a theology of abolition and she wrote the first one not me or anyone here until we come to understand she says after having this epiphany from god that a woman is as of much value as a man and we will not believe it until we see it people see it on on the taught in the bible Just so long as men imagine that a system of caste is taught in the Word of God and they belong to the upper caste, while women are of the lower caste, and just so long as they believe that mere flesh materiality, or fate, determines the caste to which one belongs, the destruction of young girls into a prostitute class will continue. This is what philosophers call ascriptivism, that by virtue of your materiality, you have a certain place in the world, and in the church, and in the home. And that is what she is working to understand. So she turns to scripture, and she uh, really basically develops this whole Bible approach to gender equality. And I'm just going to go over some of this material, because really she's the first to, to uh, address this. So she writes a book called God's Word to Women. You can get it online or at CBE. Again, our booth is upstairs. And she notices, as many of us do today, that try as you might, there is not one submissive woman in the Bible. (laughs) Try as you might. She's not there. She isn't there. I don't care what they tell you. She is not there. From Genesis to Revelation, The people who are exonerated in scripture are those who do what is right in God's eyes, who are responsive to God's call, even when it means defying cultural views related to gender. Now, though male dominance has received an enduring endorsement from the church, it's really pretty shallow biblically, just like slavery. You know, we're like, oh, slavery is biblical, but when you give it a shove, it falls down. You think that gender uh, male rule is a biblical ideal, but when you give it a shove, it's not there. And that's what Kate did. She didn't give it a little shove, she gave it a huge shove. So we're going to look at some of the, the data on this, just quickly. It's hard to find a submissive woman in the Bible. And in the early chapters of Genesis, where it's where Kate spends quite a bit of her time, there is this what we would call a metaphysical relationship between being and purpose. Being shapes purpose. We think of being as our gender, our ethnicity, our class, our nationality, whatever it might be. We believe that is a cause for superiority of some form. Maybe leadership for some form, but Kate is saying that that cannot be sustained biblically. So here's her her um, her data. Consistently in the Bible, a perfect world will always include male and female shared authority. Right? The only not good in a perfect world in Genesis is Adam's aloneness. That is the only not good, and it's not good that God alone identifies and declares that God will make a strong helper for Adam. Strong helper is a Hebrew word, etzer, you probably know this. It comes from two root Hebrew words, to be strong and to rescue. It's mentioned, that word, etzer, is found 21 times in the Old Testament. Almost always it refers to God's rescue of Israel. I lift up my eyes to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of earth, heaven and earth, my help, my etzer. right, so etzer is always a superior help. It's not an inferior help, it's a strong help. And I'm not saying Eve is superior, but I am saying she's essential. Now in the creation of Eve, this is just incredible, right? (laughs) We were talking about gender essentialism earlier this morning. You know, we are obsessed with women are from Venus and men are from Mars, and they're just these essentially different creatures, which is what the Greeks taught. (laughs) The Greeks believed that um, there is a quality in everything that makes it itself. This is like, you know, platonic metaphysics down to a few sentences. But the, we, the Greeks believed that a table is a table because a table possesses, such as this, an essential quality that makes it a table. And I am female because I possess an essential quality that makes me female, and so on. <clears throat> the trouble is, is that women don't have souls, ac- according to the Greek philosophers, that men do. And when you have these differences that are of an essential quality, like Mirzlav Wolf points out, marginalization usually leads to abuse. But what do we find in scripture? We do not find a Mars-Venus formula. Instead, we have God declaring to Adam, it is not good that you should be alone. There's this garden. There's a lot of work to do. You need a, a suitable, strong help in Hebrew. And so you would expect the fact that it's not good, and God's already declared that something needs to be done about it that you would expect the next thing to happen, poof, poof, wiggle, wiggle, there would be Eve. But that's not what happens. The next thing that happens is, God creates the... <laughs> you know, it's like, what? You know, it's like literary suspense, as if to press the point that, that, that among the glories of Eden, there's no help among the animals. It's, it's pressing the point. Duck, goose, giraffe, rhinoceros, elephant, tiger, duck, and so on. Just, but among these, the Bible says, there's no partner for Adam. A partner comes through the creation of Eve who is created in God's image. A helper, a strong help. And so Adam goes to sleep. The story says a chunk of his body is taken out. Wake up Adam. He opens his eyes. He meets her and he says... You're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I call you woman because you came from me. They share a metaphysical substance because she's created in God's image. They also share a physical substance because she is a, f- a flesh creature. She's a ha- adam. she's an earthling like he is. And she is the answer to the only not good in an imperfect world. And to stress the point, which is how Semitic people talk, I should know, I am one. Semitic people repeat themselves over and over and over again for emphasis, right? And so, over and over again, did I remove these slides? Over and over again, here we have it on Genesis 1:28 and 27, it actually starts in verse 26. And so, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Be fruitful and increase. In number, fill the earth and rule over it. That's not the greatest translation. It means to care for with equal authority. In a perfect world, now with Eve, they call this the creation mandate. It means this is the job they will have together, not to rule over each other, but to care for the earth and the world, and to be fruitful and multiply. It's repeated again. in, it's repeated in Genesis 26. God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and so on. Their rule is a shared rule. The mutuality of man and woman is, <coughs> again, one more time emphasized in the fact that when they are, um, they are one flesh, not linked to his tribe, Right, so a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. They are naked and felt no shame. Now, this is really a very radical statement coming from the ancient world where the Semitic tribes, your whole identity is linked to the, the pater or head of your tribe. But, and so when you marry, generally you join your husband's tribe and that's still the practice in many cultures. Well, when a woman leaves her family, she leaves behind a great deal of support. And in this father's family, she is easily abused and made vulnerable. But that is not really the teachings of scripture. In the teachings of scripture, they become their own tribe, which is very interesting. Now, rank authority and hierarchy are only experienced after the covenant with God is broken. And Genesis 3.16 represents a tragic consequence of sin, that the woman will have pain in childbirth, she will desire her husband, and he will rule over her. This is a consequence of sin, it is not a biblical ideal. It is a consequence of sin, it is not a biblical ideal. There are lots of consequences of sin. Death is one, um, but we have a whole medical industry addressing that. Pain in childbirth is another. We have an entire maternal medical industry addressing that. But male rule continues to receive an everlasting endorsement from the church. It is a consequence of sin. But among the consequences of sin, we also have um, a foreshadowing of a rescue coming to us in the form of Christ. And in Genesis 3, after telling the bad news, God tells some good news that there will be a child born of a woman and she will crush evil and he will crush evil forever. So it's interesting that even though there will be male rule around the edges of that and in patriarchal culture of the Bible, you continue to see the strong rescue of women now exercised in the confines of a patriarchal context. Just for a second, think about this. Woman comes out of man in the Genesis 2 account. But the second Adam comes out of a woman. Right? That's kind of like that poetic justice. And Paul goes on and on about that in 1 Corinthians 11. It's kind of fun to think about. But the strong rescue of woman continues in a patriarchal context. Women uh, continually assume positions of leadership um, in patriarchal culture as opportunities arise and through God's gifting, right? And the most prominent example of this are the prophets, right, the women prophets in the Old Testament. And you're like, well, our dialogue partners on this issue say, well, there are no kings, priests, um, uh, who are women, so there can't be, or there can't be, uh, God can't condone, women's leadership. But the trouble with that logic is that the priests and the kings were almost always led by the prophets. (laughs) Do you see that? The priests are the people who are talking to God on behalf of the people. You know, asking for forgiveness, all of these things. Talking to God, pleading to God for people. But it's the prophets who speak on behalf of God to the people, and especially the leaders of Israel. So women were really prominent as prophets. And as prophets, they give moral, spiritual, and judicial leadership to, the, to Israel, the covenant people. And here are some examples. I was just listening to a radio um, debate between two people, one who had a male-only model of leadership and one who didn't. And this, the one who was advancing a uh, male model of leadership said, Well, the only reason there are women leaders in the Bible is because men were not available to take up the task or chose not to take up the task. But Hold is a classic example. I mean, all of the women prophets, except for the bad prophets, <laughs> there are bad men prophets. <laughs> but Hold is a great example of, of a prophet who was alive during the day of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. So Jeremiah and Zephaniah are two of the great prophets in Israel's history, but when the book of the law is discovered, Josiah sends his committee to Huldah. And her advice, which is, okay, so you found the book of the law, and you're asking me what to do with it. Well, do what the law says, because the law comes from God. And so her advice to the committee leads to one of the greatest revivals in all of Israel's history. A one that lasted for generations. Miriam is the first human being called a prophet in the Bible Um, and her leadership is emphasized by the fact that Israel refused to travel without her. In the same way Deborah is not only a prophet but she's a judge and she's called the mother of Israel. The armies of Israel would not go into battle without her And Barak is condemned for, um, in fact, Barak, the leader of the army, um, he refuses to lead, and Deborah encourages him to go, and then she goes with him. And the Bible itself says, Deborah, even when it opens up the passage on Deborah in the very beginning, it says, there was a prophet who was leading Israel in her day. Very first words. There was a prophet who was leading Israel in her, in her day. Her name was Deborah. So it's, 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 it's there. So now, um, so there are other women who are referred to as prophets. We have Esther and Abigail. They're referred to as prophets in the rabbinical literature. And I love this. Sarah, <laughs> Sarah obeyed her husband. I don't think so. Sarah, the the root of her word means chief or chieftess. She lived in Pharaoh's court, independent of Abraham. In fact, she was also like Deborah, a leader of a tribe in Israel or a leader in Israel. Abraham listens to Sarah and has a child with Hagar. In fact, God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah. Um, She uh, was told that uh, she and her husband would be the leader of many people, a diverse, a very huge and diverse tribe and so she takes matters into her own hands. Um, She's perhaps not the most faithful follower of God, but uh, she definitely has power and she exercises it. We have Jael, who is really not uh, an Israelite, but sympathetic to their plight, and she uh, invites a general into her tent, a man leading an army at war with Israel. He's exhausted and he comes into her tent and she gives him some milk and then does him in. Now the interesting thing about this story is that Generals only enter ch- tents of other generals, and Sisera, the general who kill, was is, is killed by Jael, believes that he's going to carry women home as trophies of war. That's what happened. He ends up becoming a trophy of war himself at the hands of a woman, very humiliating in that culture. We ha- it goes on. Uh, we have Rebecca and, and Rachel. Right, you know, uh, two women who, in, in Rebecca's case, she orchestrates an inheritance for her younger son, Jacob, rather than Esau. And also, in a, in a similar way, uh, Rachel gives Bilholt and Leah to her husband Jacob. And though Jacob is said to be the father, or the head of Israel, uh, Rachel is orchestrating all of the events. And you're starting to wonder, where are, <laughs> Where are the submissive women that we hear about. Tamar, there's two Tamars mentioned in the Old Testament. Tamar uh, works to preserve her bloodline. She doesn't have a kinsman redeemer on her side and so she tries to get Judah to take up uh, marriage with her and he doesn't so she dresses herself up as a prostitute and he um, conceives a child with her, she keeps his staff, and later identifies the father of the child and preserves the bloodline through this this type of deception. But again, she's exercising this type of leadership that um, the scriptures exonerate. Zipporah is the wife of Moses, and um, she is the first to circumcise their sons, and she performs this priestly function uh, very early on. So that's sort of interesting. There are five women, who five sisters, who approach Moses and ask for laws that make it possible for them to inherit property. This is very, very important stuff because this is, these are verses that many lawyers to this day in places around the world lean on as biblical evidence that women can inherit property. Um, a friend of mine is working on property rights in Ghana for women. She said, we'll pass the law this year, but it won't be exercised for 20, because it's culture. there's cultural stigma to women owning property. But this is a place where, really, against the culture of their time, you see women owning property. You have women outside of Israel uh, who are um, actually ex- exercising moral and spiritual leadership. Uh, I think of Rahab. She's called a prostitute in our theological commerce, but there's some evidence that she was just simply an innkeeper who had an inn for visitors um, along the city wall. You see these around the ancient world. And so when the spies came in to check out her city, she realizes that they're going to be sacked, and the spies say, well, but just let us out the city wall and we'll run away to safety, and she goes, not until you promise to keep my family safe. So she's doing some hard boardroom negotiation with the spies of Israel. She's very much in control and they agree to retain her family as part of Israel and they promise to keep her family safe and they honor that. Now she's inducted into the list, the Hall of Fame in Hebrews for faithful women. She's put here as an example of a woman who took initiative. She had courage, she brokered for her family to be part of the covenant people. Then you have Shifra and Pua who disobeyed the king in order to save Hebrew babies, and they're also exonerated, not for obeying male rule and cultural norms for women, but for responding to God's initiative and call and for rescuing the Hebrew babies. But this just goes on. The fact that we even have two books named after women in the Old Testament is pretty, Im- pretty amazing, right? Um, Esther and Ruth, two books from the ancient world named after women. Esther, of course, um, oh, she does something very bad. Uh, she approaches her husband, also the king, in front of his friends, uninvited. She crashes a stag party, if you will which it, we, we can't really jump into that culture. You know, it's so hard for us, but it would have been, well, I can think of examples, but it would have been very, very, very demeaning to her husband to ask for an audience, and that's what she does to save the people of God. There's the story of Naomi and Ruth, documented in the book called Ruth, where um, they, she, again, a woman initiating romantic overtures with her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, really very sexual language about you know, wanting to become his wife so that she can rescue her family from destitution. We think about the romantic initiative of the women cited in the Song of Songs who pursue their romantic interest, a full-bodied expression of humanity as woman that really was out of step with the patriarchy of its culture. And then you have this Woman in Proverbs 31, who's exonerated and celebrated for her international business acumen, really eclipsing her husband at every turn. Her industry and her productivity was prolific, and she's celebrated um, at the in the city walls, where it's sort of like the New York Times. You know, this is what so and so did for our country, and it's celebrated in the city walls or the city arc, which was a just an incredible honor, and in a patriarchal culture, if you did something outstanding as a woman, it was almost always attributed to the male head of your tribe, but here we have women themselves exonerated and honored and celebrated. It's not going to the head of their tribe. It's going to them and their deeds, and we have Abigail, who (laughs) was a great diplomat. She was a great diplomat, and and she's got this kind of hot-headed, foolish husband that she's her diplomacy just eclipses. And again, very out of step with um, the tr- traditions and cultural practices of the day. But all of this reaches a full flowering in the New Testament in the person of Christ. And in the person of Christ, you know, there's uh, this absolute welcome and acceptance of women's uh, shared leadership and authority. And I'll just touch upon a couple of examples here. In Christ, there is, there is a, a whim, a, an absolute welcome of this etzer, this, etzer, this strong help that women, that women bring. If you want to write a bestseller, <laughs> talk about the places where women in the life and times of Jesus succeed, where just a few verses earlier, the disciples failed. And I'm going to just quickly run over it. It's so interesting. I mean, and the other day, I, we were, I were working in Kenya with some of my colleagues um, wh- who teach theology in, in Kazumu. And one of my colleagues, we were riding in this truck, and it's like, oh, he said, Mimi, there's another one. I found it. And he showed it to me, so I'll give it to you today. But this comes from one of my colleagues in Kenya. Uh, first, the longest uh, conversation in the New Testament between Jesus and anyone is the woman at the well of Sychar. Now, the interesting thing about this is that she's a Samaritan woman, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. So she was an outcast woman right from the bat. And Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, they're hanging out with Jesus day and night, night and day. They have lots of examples of why maybe he should be the Messiah. But what's really interesting is this woman is so bold in asking these questions. Jesus tells her all the stuff about her life, and she asks him, are you the Messiah? could you be the Messiah? And so she's, she's very, um, she exercises this, again, this full-bodied humanity. She's not demure, she's not um, placating, she's just, are you him? The one we've been waiting for? And he says, you know, I am. She drops her jar, she dashes to do what any Samaritan who, like the Jews, were waiting for the Messiah. And the disciples are outraged. They're outraged that he's talking to a woman. People say, well, she's a woman of ill repute. It doesn't matter. He's talking to her. He's inviting her to be part of the new covenant community. And she accepts it, and she tells others, come and meet the man who knew everything I have done. But it enrages the disciples. We have the anointing. This is so important, so important. The anointing passages in the Bible where women anoint Jesus. There are two scholars debate this thing. Oh, there's only one, there's two, I think there's two. There's two places where women anoint Jesus, and one where they wash his feet. Now, I haven't done a lot of work on this, but think about it. Jesus washes the disciples' feet, or tries to, and that's a big problem for Peter, right? He doesn't like it, it's humiliating, it's demeaning. But in comes this woman near Lebanon, near Syria, Phoenicia, She's an outcast woman, not a Peter, but someone who has been placed into a position of prostitution. And she goes into Christ. And even the guest who invites him, a Pharisee, doesn't kiss him, doesn't anoint his head, doesn't wash his feet. But in comes this broken woman. And she unbinds her hair, which women only did on their wedding night, as if to say, I abandon myself to you, I belong to you. She cries and washes his feet with his, her tears, and then she takes her unbound hair and washes his feet. Right, so different, so humble. And, and Christ points to her and says, do you see this woman? When I came to your house, you didn't even kiss me. You didn't wash my feet, you didn't anoint my, my hair with oil, but look what she has done. And wherever the message of the gospel goes, This story goes with her. And then there's a story. It could be the same story or a different. But there's another woman who now breaks an alabaster jar and anoints Jesus with this expensive oil. And what's the first complaint from the disciples? And he says, she knows what she's doing. She's anointing me for the greatest work of all, my death on a cross. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? And who anointed them? The priests, right? Just like the Queen of England gets anointed by archbishop, right? The priests anointed the kings of Israel. She performed a priestly anointing of the greatest king of all for his greatest work, the greatest kingly deed of all time, which was death on a cross. Wherever the gospel goes, this story will be told. There's one more, I'll just toss it out because I'm Lebanese. I'm going to celebrate Lebanon. (laughs) There's a Syro-Phoenician woman, right? Jesus goes to this party. And he's just fed 5,000 people, uh, and two of the disciples have no idea how this huge crowd's going to be fed, and he asks them a question just to test them. How are we going to feed these people? They're up on a hill. It's late at night. How will we eat? Well, we have a few. And so Jesus says, how are we going to feed them? To test them. And the disciples say, well, we have a few fish, a few loaves, but how far will that go? And maybe we should send them home. And Jesus said, Give me the fish and loaves, and they're all fed, and 12 baskets remain. He then goes up to Sarah They're in the Galilee district. He goes up to Sarah He goes to a party, a dinner party. Jesus went to a lot of parties. <laughs> <laughs> goes to a party, sits down, and a woman crashes the party. Just like the woman who anointed him and washed his feet. She crashes the party. She's not a member of the tribes of Israel. And she says, I have a sick daughter. And I need some help. And Jesus says, "What does He say to her? Am I supposed to throw the food for my people to the chil- of the children to the dogs?" Kind of a hard test, much harder than the test He gave Andrew and Thomas. And she says, jumps over the bar like a gazelle, just. And she says. Even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. He's like, you're in. (laughs) You're in. You know who I am. You get it. She got it. So interesting that these people outside Israel, these women of despised tribes are in. And then most of all, you know, you have the um, crucifixion of Christ and the women who go to prepare the, who stay with him, during his crucifixion and his burial. And, and the men hide behind locked doors. And then Mary Magdalene shows up on Easter morning. And she's just devastated that Christ has been killed. And she's sort of, I don't know, maybe she's sort of gone kind of crazy roaming around the garden, the tomb garden, and wondering what she's going to do without Christ, the only person who really loved her. And suddenly she meets a gardener who says, Mary, it's me. Go and tell the disciples I've been risen from the dead. And she wants to hold him because Semites kiss and hold people. And she didn't want. And he said, "Don't touch me. Just I'm haven't gone to the Father yet. Go and tell the disciples." So she runs. She knocks on the door. They're like, "Who is it?" <laughs> and they go, it's Mary. I've seen the Lord. He's risen. And they forget to let her in. They open the door. They let her in. And that evening, Christ appears in the midst. And what does he do? He says, look, I've risen from the dead. And then he blows on them. (sighs) Receive the spirits. And wherever you go, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. It's a spiritual anointing. They're given spiritual authority. And it's very like when Adam, the dirt, is pulled up And God breathes into the earthling and gives that earthling spiritual authority, which is incomplete without the etzer working beside him. So that's just an airplane ride over Jesus. But I'm going to do Paul. I don't know how much time I have left. But we'll do Paul, because Paul's kind of cool. We'll just quickly go through Paul. Now, Paul is very much like Jesus, right? working beside women, recognizing their spiritual authority. The difference between Jesus and Paul, at least in some ways, is that with Paul you have a theological explanation for what's going on. I like that about Paul. He likes to explain things. And he explains them theologically. So he works beside all of these women leaders. Right? You've got Phoebe, the deacon in the church of St. Crea. These people are all mentioned in Romans 16. For a long time, theologians thought Romans 16 was a very boring book and in, inconsequential, and now we're realizing it tells the social history of what really happened. If you've got Phoebe. she's the only person in the New Testament who has a church office. She's a deacon and a leader in the Church of Crea. You see her holding this um, book in her hand. She carries Paul's letter to the church in Rome and stays around to explain it. That's why the book, chapter 16, opens with, greet Phoebe, who is a prostates, a deaconess, a diacona and a prostates, a deacon and a leader in the church of St. Crea. Give her what she needs, because she's gonna hang around for a while and tell you what I think. Here's the book of the Romans. So she stays for three days and letter carriers, that was like a job. We have postal people, now we have email. But she was a, um, a letter carrier, which meant that Paul trusted her. She was strong. She, she, it was 100 miles she had to carry this letter. And then she had to stand around and talk about it while she was there. We find Junia in Romans. Junia is a woman's name, not a man's name. For many centuries, the Bible had mistranslated it to Junius, because that's a masculine ending. But there is no example of a Junius anywhere in the ancient world. So the earlier manuscripts had Junia, because it's a female name, but they just couldn't believe that she was prominent among the apostles. She is an apostle. And then you have this couple Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla is the diminutive of the name Prisca, it's a very famous Roman name. They were uh, leaders in the church, Paul talks about them, second only to Timothy, and they were absolutely essential to his um, missionary activities. Priscilla. Um, of course, teaches Apollos um, the way of the Lord more perfectly. Apollos is this great uh, uh, preacher, but he's kind of confused on a few points, and Priscilla, in the head of her husband, teaches him. Now, (laughs) I remember talking to a dialogue partner of mine on this conversation, but, but it was okay for her to teach a man because it happened in her home. I'm like, all the churches in the ancient world were in homes. It was a church. Yes, it was her home, I agree, but it was a house church. And she's mentioned ahead of her husband for the six references to her, which is like loud speaker talk that she's more significant as, as a teacher. So anyway, that's Paul. Now, the thing that's really cool about Paul is he talks about this ontological, he addresses the ontological problem of tribal inheritance. Because right, cause the Bible is always using these metaphors about like what Spiritual truth is, and the tribe metaphor, you know, if you're a daughter of Abraham, means you're in God's tribe. You're part of God's family, because that's how family was understood in the ancient world. By the way, Jesus is the only person who says daughters of Abraham. You know, it's always sons of Abraham. Jesus is the first one to say daughters of Abraham. Right? And so Paul talks extensively about what newness of life in Christ is really all about. What does it mean to be new in Christ? And then he summarizes it, he talks a lot about it in Romans 5, but then he summarizes it in Galatians 3, where he's talking to a group of Christians who are super divided, I just read it on the airplane last night, super divided about should you be circumcised as a Christian or not? What do do we do with the women? And Paul says this, in as much as you were baptized into Christ, and baptism was the outer expression of covenantal relationship. right? It used to be circumcision, but no, now we have baptism. Everybody can be baptized. And if you go to the ancient world, there's nothing but mural after mural after mural of baptism. It was the outer expression of tribal covenantal relationship. And on these baptismal fonts, friends, Cal- it's pretty clear. They, 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 this is the passage that they inscribed on the baptismal fonts because in as much as you were part of the Jesus tribe, you, were, you went into the grave, you died with Christ, you went into the grave, you rose with Christ, a member, a new person born again into a new tribe, the Jesus tribe, so that your rebirth means there is no superiority. Jews might think they're superior, Greeks might think they're superior, free might think they're superior, and men might think they're superior. But in the Jesus tribe, your rebirth means that you're all heirs of the same covenant and heirs of the same father who's head of the same tribe, who's head of a tribe, and you're all equal. Now, People say, oh, this means that everyone can come to Christ. Theologically, it doesn't work that way. The work of Christ, what we call soteriology, shapes ecclesiology, the work of the church. The work of Christ shapes the work of the church. And this is ancient tribal language to say you've been baptized with Christ. You are no longer, these things give you no special prerogative in the body of Christ because you are all Abraham's offspring and equal heirs of the promise. The promise is salvation, but after that, now we're born again, we need to grow up and do the work of the kingdom, and we do that together with shared authority. This is why everywhere Paul talks about authority, in marriage, for example, it's always framed around mutuality. So in Ephesians 5, 21, Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means all Christians should be ipso facto in their demeanor, in their approach, deferential to other Christians. Now he says, in the same way, wives to their husbands. The verb submit is not there. It's borrowed from verse 21, which means you're part of the same thought, mutual submission. Then he goes on to say, husbands, yes you do have, husbands were in charge in the ancient world, but to be head is to be first in loving your wife the way Christ loved the church, so that if your wife, (laughs) this has nothing to do with authority. We hear this at weddings all the time, will you submit to your husband? This is what mutual submission really looks like. If your wife is hungry, you are hungry. If she's cold, you are cold, because you should feel for her as if it were happening to your own body. That's what the one-flesh relationship is about. This is not power language. This is oneness language, flesh language of one flesh. And that's why he hearkens back to the Genesis passage. It's a great mystery, right? And I'm applying it, that a husband should love his wife and a wife should respect her husband. This is uh, one body, one flesh, mutuality language. The only place where the Bible talks about authority in marriage is in 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul says, a wife has authority over her husband's body as a husband has authority over her body. That's the only place authority is ever made. Submission is a mutually consenting relationship or act of the will. And you know, the same thing, he, Paul does the same thing with slaves, right? In the chapter Philemon 1, he says, by the way, Philemon was part of his wife's house church. Her name was Apphia. <laughs> so I don't know if Philemon had a problem, but there was a church that met in Apphia's house. And Philemon, so Paul writes a letter to Philemon and he says, Onesimus is your slave, but he has been very useful to me. I ask you to return him. He's your property. I'm giving him back to you, but receive him as a brother. Okay, so going back to Galatians 3.28, Slave and free. It's not slave and free. It's brother-sister. You see? Because we're part of the same tribe. We're part of the same family. You might be a slave in the ancient world, and I might be your owner, but when we come into the church, hey, we're brothers and sisters. That superiority is not a kingdom value. And so Paul says, receive him as a brother. And the ancient language, or the ancient, um, the, the records show that Anasimus went on to become Bishop of Ephesus. So they let him go. Or they set him free to do his ministry. All these examples, uh, house churches that uh, met in women's homes, all of this is powerful stuff. And of course the spiritual gifts, the equipping of the spirit. When we come to faith, there's this supernatural equipping. The Greek speaks about it as a piece of God's spirit a powerful piece of God's spirit is put into every believer for supernatural uh, ministry and work, but nowhere is it delineated along ethnic, gender, or class lines, which is very consistent with the teachings of Paul. And um, then we come to uh, this whole passage on Timothy. Because leadership leadership is about service. All right? So the spiritual gifts equip us to serve, and everybody can serve. So all Christians are called to serve, all Christians have a gift for service, and leadership is about one thing, and that's to serve. Not to dominate and rule, but to serve. Now this is a passage that's been used more often than any other passage to limit the leadership of women, but I think that the language of the earlier translations makes clear that not only is leadership about service, but leadership is about character, Christian character. And in the Vulgate, which is probably the best translation we have, the most accurate, it's closest to the time, it's a translation that was produced by Paula and Jerome. They translate that one word to hold authority, authentic, as domineer. Because everywhere that word was used in the ancient world, it was only used once in the New Testament, but everywhere else it was used to, to imply to usurp authority, to domineer, to lord it over. Philip Payne, who wrote a wonderful book called Man and Woman, One in Christ, he said that the way he interprets this passage is, Paul is saying, literally in Greek, I am not now permitting a woman to, to domineer in order to teach false teachings, which was the problem that Paul is addressing with Timothy. Timothy, Paul writes this very um, private letter to Timothy about the false teachers in the church in Ephesus, and the main problem is uh, a syncretism that had crept in to the church in Ephesus, and women were involved in it somehow because Ephesus was the center of. What great goddess was worshipped in Ephesus? Who? Yes, Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember a great a riot breaks out in Acts? Great is the goddess of Artemis. Great is the goddess Artemis. And this riot lasts for two hours. She um, had her temple in Ephesus. She was the quintessential feminist goddess. She did not have a male consort, which was very unusual among the Greek pantheon. She was a woman-only goddess. In fact, her eunuchs who worked in her temple, which was one of the seventh wonders of the world. Um, Only one gigantic marble column is left. But for one whole month, the whole town of um, Ephesus shut down, and they worshipped Artemis. And she was said to keep ch- uh, women safe in childbearing because she was a fertility goddess. And if you worshipped her, you wouldn't die in childbirth, which is how two-thirds of the women in the ancient world died, giving birth to children. But if you worshipped Artemis, she would protect you in childbirth. And Paul is saying, you're kept safe in childbirth by remaining faithful uh, Christians, honoring God, and praying and being exhibiting the fruit of the spirit. So Paul's is, Paul is writing to Timothy, it's a difficult situation. Possibly the women involved in, Ar, in the Artemis cult had infiltrated the church in any way. There were false teachings. It was shipwrecking the faith of many. So Paul, who does Paul send back to Ephesus to help him out? Who had the house church in Ephesus? Where was Apollos taught? So much fun, it's just like this big murder mystery. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, they had the first church in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila leave Ephesus, they go back to Rome, but this problem is so huge, and I'm like, why would you ever start a church in Ephesus? It's the craziest place of all, because it's the center of Artemis worship, but Paul said, this is where we're going to have a church. Timothy's having all these problems, there's all these false teachers, they've jumped into the pulpit, they've pretty much usurped the microphone. They're teaching, they're false teachers, They're leading people astray, they no longer hear the gospel as they should. Who does he send back? Yes, he sends Priscilla back. Just before he's executed in Rome, and he says to Timothy, and greet Priscilla, who's now come back to help you out. So these are just, you know, now... To be a leader is to serve, and the most important quality of a leader is not their spiritual gifts, their gender, ethnicity, class, gender, education, but their character, their Christian character, how you drive your car, how you manage anger, (laughs) how you deal with money, how you treat people who aren't as cool as you in your mind, the qualities of a leader. Every single place where Paul talks about leadership, he talks about not their gender, as you might expect, but they're a character. Now, of course, this gets distorted in the, in the conversation around male leadership. She's, you know, if you're going to be an elder, you need to be the husband of one wife. So we focus on husband instead of one wife. You know, but he's saying the qualities of a leader are to be temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, apt teacher, don't be drunk, don't be violent, don't be greedy, but be gentle, and a deacon also don't be double-tongued, don't be indulging in much wine, greedy, etc. And the widows, who was a form, it was another uh, order of leadership. And all of these qualities of the leader very much represent the fruit of the spirit, right, that stand in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. So if we're looking for leaders, we're not supposed to be thinking about their gender, their class, their ethnicity, we're supposed to be thinking about Do they have the gifts that we're looking for? And do they have a Christian character? Or are they usurping authority? I'm going to end with this mosaic. I took this picture. It's kind of cool. It's from the Korah Church in Istanbul. Um, she's, What a beautiful church. Wow, murals everywhere. This is the Anastasia. This is the Anastasia mural. It's also called Harrowing the Gates of Hell. The, or, the, church, the early church was an oral. They didn't read or write, but everything was oral. And so they would make these mosaics that would become the Sunday school class. And this was the most, one of the most important mosaics. You can find this uh, in Russia and in Eastern Europe, where, where the mission, Christian missionaries went. And here you have Christ, the risen Lord. He's dressed in white and gold to symbolize his victory over sin and death. Remember, he tells Mary, I can't go to you yet. I haven't gone to the Father, because he's descending into hell. And he breaks the gates of hell. Remember, we say even the gates of hell cannot prevail against God. And this is such a strong declaration of our power in Christ. And he breaks the gates of hell. And the gates are made out of wood, and they're formed like a cross, the symbol of his victory over sin and death. And he goes into hell, and who are the first two people he grabs? But Adam and Eve by the wrists, and he pulls them out of hell because just like there's so our, 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 the impact of sin in our life is is so significant according to these teachings that only through God's initiative can we be rescued. Just like Adam and Eve could not have been created without God's initiative. And this is a, a this is placing at the center of the biblical drama Christ's victory over sin and death. So he grabs Adam and Eve and he restores what had gone so terribly wrong. Because, Paul tells us in Romans 5, the gift is not like the curse. In the second Adam, men and women share authority equally. He's writing what had gone wrong. The disharmony between men and women, the disharmony an alienation between uh, humanity and God, the chaos, and the dominance that breaks out as a result of sin. This mural is saying, in Christ, it comes to an end, and that, in my mind, is the theology, an abolition- a theology of abolition. We can no more heal and be part of the reconciliation that God wants of the world by advancing male rule and human subjugation. We have to be part of the liberation that gives men and women, restores men and women to their place, shared uh, caring of the world. And um, I I, I worry that the Christian church is exporting patriarchy more than it's bringing the gospel message of of the Anastasia uh, to our world. And that's why I think I was asked to lead this this workshop. So thank you for your attention and we will take questions